Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Kate Milton, Customer Experience Program Officer at Historic Royal Palaces. Kate shares her infectious passion for customer experience and talks us through the six-month customer journey mapping exercise they carried out with KPMG. If you like what you hear, subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm really excited to speak to you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to speak about anything that's customer experience, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a good chat then but first of all I have to ask you some icebreaker questions so we don't get to chat about customer experience quite yet I'm going to ask you what your favorite breakfast food is oh my god that's a curveball um I don't really do breakfast oh. I'm, I mean I'm like I get up in the morning and I feel like it's way too early for my stomach to be dealing with anything like food so I think if I'm being good then it's usually like a yogurt or some raisins or that makes me sound a lot healthier than I am. Oh my goodness, doesn't it? I mean, today it was a blueberry muffin, so <laughs> it pretty much depends what's nearby. Yesterday it was cheeselets. So, um, yeah, I hope my mum doesn't listen. She, <laughs> her main fear of me is that I'm not eating properly and I just prove her correct uh, there on breakfast. But, Don't yeah. let her listen to this, though. Although I would say that cheeselets are a, an extremely tasty breakfast, so Honestly, why not? I'm addicted. And now they're coming out in the, like, the picnic boxes. And I, every time this year, I'm getting, like, my entire family's like, if you find them, stock up. <laughs> like, <laughs> find them for me. Um, but, yeah, it's not maybe not the most nutritious start to the day, but there we go. All right, cheeselets. Or yogurt and raisins. Yeah, <laughs> not all together. Not all together. Just a- balanced. <laughs> a balanced breakfast. Okay. What show on Netflix did you binge watch embarrassingly fast? Oh, that's a good question. So my f- absolute favourite one. I got obsessed with it um, during lockdown, like everybody else did, when there was nothing else to do. Was um, Mind Hunter. So it's kind of about the beginning of the FBI. So anything with that kind of psychological twist. I mean, I am the cliche millennial in the true crime and I'm there. I'm like, oh, what's wrong with all these people? Um, but uh, Mindhunter was so good. I think they only did a couple of series and they keep kind of promising maybe a third, but nothing yet. But um, yeah, I did that. I did that in about two or three days, just kind of. Well, there's nothing else to do um but that wow. was yeah that everyone go and watch it if, maybe if everyone watches it then maybe they will make a third series but yeah the beginning of the FBI and all that kind of profiling and where all that came from this is on my list because I I like a little oh, amazing. Crime, um yeah series as well so that is on our list to watch so I'm really glad that you recommended that because I wasn't quite sure so so okay. good I, I really and Jonathan Groff is in it because he also plays the king in hamilton so it's really strange seeing him do this i think he's known for musical theater a bit more and then in this kind of really straight role about kind of creating that psychological profiling of kind of the worst that humanity has to offer is yeah he's amazing but yes watch it put it to the top of your list definitely i will do that third and final icebreaker question if money and time were no object what would you be doing right now traveling 100% but that's misleading I I wouldn't be I'm not ever going to pretend I'm the kind of traveler with a with a rucksack I need I need something on wheels so I would be going places um I would be yeah going places with the suitcases not having to worry about what the cheapest airport transfer is (laughs) how to get places I would just be I would be having a lovely time just I'd never see winter again definitely I'm I'm not a winter person I'm loving the sun so 
um yeah from a very selfish point of view rather than trying to fix mm. the rest of the world I would be just following the sun all year round and having a lovely time that's fine it's your money it's your time you do whatever you want with it I would also donate to charity and save the whales saved it <laughs> <laughs> that, now that was a classic millennial answer there you go, yeah. <laughs> all right hey um what is your unpopular opinion what have you got for us I feel like this is quite unpopular. I'm also a little bit worried that if I say it, that anyone listening is straight away going to be like, well, she has no idea what she's talking about. So I'm not going to listen to the rest of this. Don't worry. But, um, honestly, there's been some real shockers on here. You can't, you, you, you'll be good. So um, my unpopular opinion is that I think that tea, coffee and alcohol are the most disgusting things on the planet. I do not understand how so much of this country is powered by one of those three things. I can't stand the taste of any of them. Um, so I have lived my life without any of them. Maybe I've got, it's more I've got the taste palette of a child. Although there is, there's also a possibility I'm a super taster. So I'm just very sensitive um, yeah. and probably a superpower. So actually it's all you guys that are wrong. I'm, I've just evolved out of the <laughs> <laughs> I love this, but this is how you look so fresh faced as well, because you don't drink the coffee. Well, I don't know. don't drink the alcohol. <laughs> so I mean, we are in the wrong. Want, it, it helps more on the money point of view I'm not gonna lie I, um that that definitely makes a night out cheaper but no any fresh facedness is down to my very complex skincare regime that I developed over lockdown so <laughs> that's where all the money goes instead <laughs> okay not on avocados right listeners, <laughs> tell us how you feel about about um Kate's unpopular opinion this is yeah it's an interesting one my husband's actually teetotal at the moment. He's just gone off alcohol. Just doesn't like the effects that it, that it leaves him with. It, gets, yeah. um, it really affects his mood. So, he's, yeah, yeah it's just cut it out. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite liberating, really, isn't it? Honestly, do you know what I mean? Cause I've, I've had it all the way through. So it made uni quite difficult because the, as soon as anyone will meet you, the first question you have to answer is, why don't you drink? Um, but definitely in the last kind of five, five years or so, it's not a question I get so much anymore. Mm. It's just say, oh, OK, then. So I think I think there is a general trend in people for whatever reason, like there's a whole range of reasons, like trying not to drink for a little while or, you know, deciding they don't want that in their lives anymore. It's it's a lot more common. So I I don't have to answer that question so often because the, the next bit was always it's OK. I've got something you'll love. <laughs> but it shouldn't be a question. You haven't, like, <laughs> but it shouldn't be a question, should it? It's just, you know, I don't drink. OK, how it is. I can just about manage like the super sweet if it's really sweet so you know the like just a lot of sugar then I can just about nurse kind of one cocktail for about but it will take me six hours or so to to drink it it's not something that I enjoy and it goes down nice and smooth so um yeah unless somebody's bought it for me because they're they're being nice it's not something (laughs) and then then there's the guilt the the guilt of having to drink it I guess yeah exactly I'm just there sipping like yeah no I don't need another one this is really nice thank you (laughs) okay Right, tell us how you feel. I don't think that's too too unpopular at all, Kate. Um, Kate, you are the customer experience program officer at Historic Royal Palaces. Yes. I want to know about this role. Like, tell tell us what it involves because I'm guessing very broad. <laughs> yes, you could say that. So, um, yeah. So I work for Historic Royal Palaces. I actually work across all six sites. So I'm based at the Tower. The Tower is is my home, um, and I've got the most experience. In- tower because I originally started in heritage in operations at the Tower of London but now yeah I work across the tower Kensington Palace Hampton Court Banksing House um, Kew Palace and as, as well as um, Hillsborough Castle over in Northern Ireland so 
yeah, I'm kind of there looking across kind of customer experience and initiatives across those sites, trying to make sure that we've kind of got that one standard for, for HRP and what customer experience means, customer service means from an HRP point of view. So, yeah, it is quite broad. It's anything from kind of creating our customer service standard that I did with um, colleagues in operations. Goodness, like two years ago now, I think just before we, we reopened from the from the first lockdown, um, right up to kind of more strategic things um, about kind of where we need to aim for, where we need to focus our attention, having a look at a lot of customer journeys and understanding the end to end journey for all our sites. Um, I am the only one in my department I am a department all by myself so there's a lot of kind of advocating for what customer journeys mean and joining up bits of the organization not not entirely by myself I have the support of um, my visitor experience group which is our operations directors our public engagement director and our commercial director and all the ops teams um, across the site who I think in operations you know how complex the journey is you see the whole thing so I think they're, they're the teams I work most closely with as well as kind of overseeing things that are related to visitor feedback. So there's so much data. We have so much information on our visitors and what they think, what they feel, what their expectations are. So there's a lot of kind of work with our customer insight manager about how we best collate that, use it, spot the trends. Um, so, yeah. And, I, and also I just get deployed really to any kind of projects <laughs> that might need of um, kind of, yeah, I suppose a little focus on customer experience and I pipe up with annoying things like, uh, that's You've not, not that's thought not about this journey. So can we, can we not do that? Um, yeah, so I, I kind of get involved. I'm so lucky I get to get involved in basically anything that, that needs that kind of customer focus, which in a visitor attraction is, is nearly everything. So um, it's an amazing role and uh, yeah, in a great place. What a job. It's what honestly, a job. I landed on my feet with this one. This one. <laughs> not too bad well I mean firstly they are not terrible places to go to work every day are they I mean what 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 a place it ruins you for life though because if anyone says to me now that you have to go to work in like a normal office block it's very much yeah so where's the armed guard outside the (laughs) office door um how many drawbridges do I have to go under over how many portcullises are there to go under none okay no well that's boring isn't it um that's not for me then exactly like it's it's, I'm sorry I'm a palace only um person these days but (laughs) no honestly it's 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 absolutely stunning and actually um kind of the the previous governor who worked here who kind of gave my first um chance at the tower so it's been very much a kind of mentor to me but I always remember him saying that if you ever come to work one day and you're not kind of just awed by where you are then it's time to leave and let somebody else come in because you should just never forget the sites you're working out and the kind of connection to history that they've got um it's it's yeah I I still get the kind of oh my god the white tower like it's yeah it's still an absolutely I've been kind of here coming here on and off eight years with different roles and everything and I still don't get over it that's amazing so you still get the goosebumps you still get the completely you know you just walk under like an archway and there are little faces carved into the carved into the arch and they've seen every monarch since you know Henry III every single monarch we've had like some of the biggest events in world history have happened within these walls or at Hampton Court with Henry VIII or Banqueting House Charles I was executed outside outside Banqueting House so you know some real key history where it happened moments have happened at our sites and it's amazing that we get to kind of invite people in to share those share those stories how did you get because you said that this you've really landed on your feet this is like a dream role what did you study beforehand to to bring into this role 
So I started like uni wise, I did English and history degree. Um, and then I because I kind of graduated in the last recession. So I ended up working in um, schools in Essex and kind of as a PA. And at the time, honestly, that's all I wanted to be. I was just like, I'm happy being a PA. I like I like organizing things. Um, you know, PAs, are, it's, a, it's a brilliant job if you like organizing and just kind of sitting there really understanding nuts and bolts of things. Um, and then I saw the PA job advertised for the, for the governor of the Tower of London. And the tower has been honestly like my favorite place in the world since I was about five or six. I have like a, a picture my grandmother took of me at the gates, like kind of just like, oh, let me in, let me in. Um, so getting it was a complete, complete dream come true. But I got it based on the fact I just sat there and said, yeah, I just want to be a PA. That's my dream. I just want to be a PA. I've got no other aspirations. But within nine months, I had made the most of an opportunity to move into ops. And then from then on, I was just like, this is what I should do. This is the, I, I love making stuff happen. I love working here. I love heritage. This just fits who I am. This is, yeah. this is who, what I want to do. Um, so I was there for a little bit. I was lucky enough to run an event called the Constable's Installation. So um, every kind of four or five years, the Queen nominates her representative, the Tower of London, which is known as the Constable of the Tower. We've had one since 1078. So it's not a position that many people have had. And we had this big kind of ceremony that the Lord Chamberlain comes to to install the constable. And I was fortunate enough to be the first woman and the first civilian to run that installation in 2016. Gosh. And I mean, it, it was it's just it's still one of the best days of my life. But I peaked really, really early. <laughs> like I peaked at 28. That's it now. <laughs> it's all downhill from now on. Um, but kind of doing that kind of mix of operations and big ceremonies and events. I was kind of pinched by English Heritage to be their um, event manager for a couple of years, actually working with Lucy Hutchings, who I've then been working with um, at Hampton Court. Um, oh, lovely. So that's been, a, that's been really nice. Um, yeah. And then I kind of kept an eye on what was happening at HRP because it was very much like it was it, English Heritage is an absolutely fantastic organization, um, but I'm very London centric. So yeah, when this, when this role came up, I kind of had the right combination of I've been in ops, I've been on the front line, you know, I understand, I care about what that experience looks like. Um, so yeah, I applied for the for the role and the mothership called me home. Oh <laughs> I came, my goodness. I came back That's to the so tower. Amazing. But it's yeah, so I've I've been I've had a lovely time in the last eight years. I've been very lucky. Um, that is yeah, I've been here for the last four. And it's been it's been such a learning curve because it's you know we, we originally started with a program called seamless and distinctive which is around customer experience and that's now become a little bit more kind of business as usual but i've learned so so much in the last four years and really cemented that customer experience is is the bit i love the most that oh, i really want to you've left those pa the pa dreams you've left them behind i know <laughs> they've they, yeah they've they've kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit and then now it's just like i want to run things <laughs> <laughs> bigger dreams exactly bigger dreams. absolutely there's lo- I, there's lo- I've got so many questions for you based on what you just, <laughs> just talked through, but we, we spoke a couple of weeks ago and you talked to me about the customer journey mapping exercise that you went yes. on with KPMG. And I was really interested in this because it's really, it's similar to what we do in digital. So we take, yeah. we, we look at user journeys and we, we, we plot out where people are going to go on the site and what journeys we want to take them on. And it, and it's, it sounds very similar, but obviously it's in the real world. And I, I kind of wanted to, I wanted to get you to talk that through, you know, tell us yeah, how yeah. you go about that and what, what was the need for it to start with? Yeah. So customer journey mapping is 
such a vital tool for understanding the entire end-to-end journey for your customers. For example, at kind of um, HRP sites, we had departments who were kind of looking after individual touch points of, of our customer journey, particularly on site. But in order to make the journey as seamless as possible and to kind of be the best possible experience, it's essential that all of those touch points link together beautifully um, and they don't kind of jar that, you know, one department wants to do things this way, another does it this way, and it, it just gets a bit kind of jarring to go through that that journey. Um, so the customer experience overall suffers a little bit. But when you're looking at a customer journey map, it really gives you that picture of this is where our customer starts and, you know, this is the kind of thing that they're feeling, these are emotions, this is what their expectations are. And then takes you through every single touch point right until the end, which is, in our case, they've gone off site. What kind of um, post-visit relationship do we have with them after that? So for us, it was it was very much the ambition to, to visualize that, to map that out, to get a, I suppose, like a Bible of customer experience where everything is on that in that one place. So we can all be working to the same document. We can all understand the same thing, have the same vision and really start kind of picking out those areas that we could focus on to improve what is don't get me wrong already an excellent visitor experience we are have some of the most amazing sites some of the most amazing front of house teams so it's going from good to great rather than oh my god this is horrendous we need to fix this Mm -hmm. so it's just where those little areas are that we could push ourselves kind of up a little bit more so yeah we we kind of got the help of kpmg to do that because it was it was not an approach that hrp had had done previously so we needed that kind of outside consultancy advice on how to go about that and yeah we worked with them on on kind of the processing of gathering all the information the data and insight that we had which was a mammoth task we we have a lot we have all sorts of kind of surveys that are done about different exhibitions or um, exit surveys we have like the alva benchmarking there's so much information that we have just dotted around at different places. So trying to bring that all together um, to understand the picture that our visitors have been telling us, you know, the information is there, what they want to see, what their expectations are, motivations, what they need on site. So it's all that kind of information. Um, We also ran workshops and did service safaris. So that is essentially taking a cross palace team and kind of giving them a, a role for the day, giving them a persona. So, for example, you're the Walker family today. So get your mind, get do, we did some empathy mapping to really get people's minds into, I'm a family. I've got a young child and a slightly older child. What do I need? Have I got a buggy? Have I got to take things? Am I going to change rooms? All those kind of considerations. So we gave people different personas so they could really kind of connect with some of our general groups of visitors. This is one of the, the frustrations because obviously you can't cover everybody. You, mm. you do have to be very general and there are going to be gaps in that um but some of that you you can kind of cover off later but yes we did these service safaris and got our teams to to do a visit and to start looking at things from a visitor's point of view that's so interesting so it's your own internal team that you take through this exactly exactly and it was always important to make sure that we had other um, members of staff who aren't used to that particular site so with kpmg we did kensington and tower of london and it's one of those things with the best will in the world, like you get blindness with your own sight because you see things day after day. You know what you're trying to focus on, what you're trying to improve. But sometimes you just stop seeing some of the things, like stop seeing the like the wood through the trees kind of thing. So it's really helpful to get those other members of staff that aren't there every single day. And it's it's fascinating what comes out. And it's so useful for members of staff to kind of really see like, 
oh yeah why 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 are we expecting us to do that or that's actually quite difficult why are we doing it like that it's it's so useful and honestly I mean even if it's not a process the customer journey mapping is not a process that other organizations want to go through I completely recommend doing service safaris it really opens people's eyes but we also kind of had uh, a lot of one-to-one conversations with members of staff from across the organization and one of the most important groups in that was front of house you know visitor feedback is essential in understanding what our visitors want um, and you know their opinions on stuff but a lot of stuff that we've got for example in our CRM um, where visitors have contacted our contact center that's either the stuff that they absolutely love and is amazing or the stuff that's really upset them there's a massive gap in the middle there mm. that our front of house team see every day in terms of kind of minor irritations that's just a kind of it puts friction in but it's not enough for someone to complain about we need to look at that stuff as well. That's that's the kind of everyday stuff that just kind of jars with you a little bit. You just think, oh, that was a bit rubbish. Um, and that stays in you. That that It might not be that something you want to complain about later on, but it's still that you're going to go to your friends and sort of say, yeah, it was good. I mean, this bit was a bit annoying. So it's so important to engage front of house teams to kind of ask spies on the ground, um, to know what they're always asked about, to know do visitors always go the wrong way in this bit? You know, is it clear where what room they're in? Is it clear where the toilets are? If the map's okay, um, so we did we did quite a bit of work about talking to to those guys as well, and it's just kind of collating all of this data that everybody's got. Um, you know, it's just a matter of putting it together, and yeah, putting it into this this kind of tool that shows you what's happening at each at each touch point. The most valuable thing I think that the snapshot that comes from it is the emotional journey of the customer so obviously what you want in an ideal world is that they come in feeling okay and they leave thinking this is the most amazing thing like that was great I loved every kind of connection I had with that organization and that's what you're aspiring to as well as everything nice and green and happy in the middle but you know that emotional journey kind of graph really gives you a snapshot of oh okay well things are dropping a little bit here what what's going wrong here or what can we improve here or how has something earlier on not set this up properly um and is this if we fix this is this going to affect later on so it's it's honestly it's such a, a valuable tool to really get that idea of what our visitors what our customers um are actually going through that's epic though isn't it I mean like the amount of information yeah. that you need <laughs> to have for that and to, to do it really well too how long does a process like that take so in terms of kind of the data we already had, obviously, you know, we, we were talking kind of years of data, customer journey mapping, you can kind of either do it as a snapshot of the current state, or you can be a bit more aspirational and do it as a snapshot of kind of where you want to get to. Um, it's most useful really to have a kind of combination of well, tab two. But yeah, for us, it was it was a, doing a, an in-depth audit of all the bits of information we had, making sure that KPMG had access to that. And we went through it with them about what this means, what this doesn't. There's also that kind of complication of was something exceptional happening three years ago that means that skewed that data a little bit. So what can we look into that? Um, Is there kind of justification? So for example, if our ticketing system had a blip um, and we get loads of complaints about that, we know that we've solved that. We don't need to worry too much about that, but we maybe need to record, you know, it's annoying if (laughs) if the ticketing system um, has a moment. But overall, I mean, it took us maybe about six months to do with with KPMG and kind of getting through all these stages of looking at the visitor stuff, looking at the employee stuff, looking at which departments um, feed into which parts, 
and also just identifying all the touch points. I think we've ended up with something around 70 to 80 individual touch points from start to finish on an on-site journey. So, you know, that's only what we're talking about when visitors actually come online on site. We also have, like you were saying earlier, like digital journeys that our digital engagement team look at. We have membership, we have schools, we have people with accessibility requirements. They'll have a different journey. There's all sorts of different things to layer on top of that that you can kind of factor in. But it was it was very in-depth and just absolutely fascinating and a really good opportunity to kind of get everyone on board the same thing as well and to get kind of departments that kind of sit alongside each other but maybe don't um, overlap so often or, you know, we're the same as many other organisations, multi-site organisations that sometimes silos are, are a um, kind of a barrier and doing things like this really starts to show everyone how they're part of the entire um, and that, you know, cross-departmental uh, working is, is really, really useful. Yeah, it's re-engaging the internal team with the visitor as well, isn't it? Putting them in, because you've put them in their shoes and you, Absolutely. you mentioned empathy. Yeah, so um, we did some empathy mapping um, where essentially we kind of, before we sent people out on that service safari, we gave them these personas and we gave them kind of questionnaires about what do you think this person or this group of people is looking for? What do you think their main considerations are? What do you think their main worries are? What do they need on site? What are they trying to get out of it? I mean, KPMG made us, created us some personas that kind of combined things like our cultural segments um, as well and kind of making sure we've got that overlap between motivations and needs. Personas are a key part of customer journey mapping and yeah, kind of creating, say it's the kind of general average visitor, which is incredibly difficult for a lot of sites because we've got they don't exist exactly (laughs) we've got people from all over the world or just a different kind of background so that is a difficult thing but I think one of the other things to to kind of bear in mind with customer journey mapping is you don't want to get analysis paralysis I suppose you don't want to kind of get into that mindset where you kind of analyzing so much that you don't just get something done it is so important to get started because the thing with customer journey maps is they're not static documents that's not it you don't create one and then oh we're done now this is what it looks like you take it, you learn from it, you update it, you review it, you take kind of opportunities from it, you look at how else you can track and wonder about trends. So if you've improved something, you kind of keep an eye on feedback, see how we improve that. So it keeps moving. That's that's its value, is that it's a live document that you keep updating to see how the journey moves and where the weak points get to. And eventually you end up with a just five across the board <laughs> and you're like, now you're done. <laughs> no, you'd be like, I'm sure that is over. not the case. No, no I don't think so. <laughs> you went through this process six months. Actually, yeah. it, that was interesting because I thought that you were going to say it was longer. I, I, I was expecting you to say it was, it was a year's process. Yeah. So six months. What were the outcomes from that, and what you know, what have you what have you had to improve because of it? So I think one of the biggest outcomes, because I should also say that we the delivery of this got pushed forward slightly because um the end of the world happened so we kind of got to uh spring 2020 getting to the point where like we we're just about to understand everything there is to know and then our business disappeared <laughs> we're and like, then the oh. world went ah, 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 ah. yeah exactly no, not. <laughs> like, okay then so there's no there's no customers to improve the experience of right now um so that kind of obviously put a pause on things for, for a little while but one of the kind of biggest things I think it 
gave a focus to, um, which is one of the major outcomes, was like you say, kind of helping people refocus on the on the visitor, on the customer. Um, what it meant was we were able to demonstrate that operations really have ownership of that entire journey. And we have kind of, I mean, they're a bit more than subject matter experts, but, you know, like our interpretation teams, our curatorial teams, they support ops and ops support them to deliver. But it was just really important that we started moving towards an organization where operations control and own that end-to-end journey so that someone does and so that there's consistency in delivery so that we are kind of switching back and forth between different departments which you know internally we can work like that that's fine I you know we understand about how it's this person interpretation and it's this person but you know we don't want our visitors to feel like there's effort between touch points we, they they see it um, as historical palaces that's what we need to present it as so it made sense for operations to really kind of um I suppose step up and take ownership of that Mm -hmm. and our structure now kind of reflects that as well so I think in terms of kind of outcomes it was a lot of kind of realization of how best to run a customer experience and also just the fact that you know like I said we had so many kind of different overlaps of things and it kind of starts drawing out as well the themes throughout the entire organization but also those places where the palaces are different. And there's a, a balance to be struck there about they have to be different. They tell different stories. They, they have different personalities, but we want it to be an HRP standard. So how does that apply to each of the different sites? So after we did Tower and Kensington, we've also got a ticketing journey map as well. Um, I've just done the Hampton Court one. So for the first, first time, HRP has done a customer journey map by themselves. So I went out and did the Hampton Courts uh, customer journey map. We've just, we just come to the conclusion of that and fed back to the, the workshop group. So kind of having that learning about how to approach these things, how to do it, how to be sustainable on our own so that you know, we don't have to keep going back and saying, we've got another one, can you, can you help us do another one? Um, yeah, and hopefully we'll be able to do Hillsborough. And then, you know, go back and start, as I said before, like layering the schools and community visits absolutely layering accessibility a colleague of mine made a really good point that that should be a priority for us and 100% agree some of our sites are incredibly challenging for people with different access requirements because you know they they weren't built that way Um, Tower of London in particular was built to keep people out um, (laughs) rather than welcoming two million or so visitors (laughs) so um, you know we've got there's there's challenges around that and I think you know any other historic um, site would would um, sympathize with that so I think it just kind of focused us really it focused us on what we can do for customer experience and that it's an ongoing thing it's not a we'll do it we'll fix it we'll move on Um, but also just the fact that I think I've kind of said briefly before that it's not about fixing individual touch points and kind of the best example I guess um I was kind of I, I keep wheeling out this one example to everyone to demonstrate it it's where we've kind of as everybody has moved to a more online ticketing model because that's you know the fluid expectations of customers that's what people expect they want to be able to self-serve and, and be able to sort themselves out great we're, we're brilliant we're on that people can do that but the problem is that if we're moving to that model and, and the majority of our visitors are booking online when they turn up at site, if they come to the Westgate at Hampton Court, the Westgate at um, Tower of London, um, they haven't had a chat with our great admissions team. So they haven't had a chance to orientate themselves. They haven't had a chance to be given a map and be told what's going on that day. They've gone, they kind of had been able to skip that and go straight to a gate. So it's kind of, okay, so, you know, we, we, we've made that bit um, better and, and more seamless. 
but now we've moved a problem further down the line so it's it's understanding the changes to one touch point and how that impacts the rest of the journey you can't just fix one thing in isolation and think excellent that will be up and green now without considering its position in in the entire in the rest of the journey I think that is such an excellent point isn't it you can't fix one touch point without it impacting another and and how do you monitor the impacts when you do oh goodness I was going to ask you what was your biggest learning from the process but it sounds like one of the biggest learnings was being able to do it yourself I don't have to do it (laughs) no it absolutely was it was it was so valuable to kind of um to watch the the guys from KPMG because you know in in terms of kind of consultancy support they are some of the best KPMG numbers are some of the best in 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 that kind of area of, of customer experience um so it was it was amazing to kind of go through that also kind of understand some of the psychology behind it and you know what we're trying to achieve and why and even kind of watching them watching our visitors um up on Tower Hill and, and understanding how they're moving and how we might be able to improve that and where the hesitations are and you know what might be going on that kind of understanding that psychological factor was so useful so so useful um for me kind of taking it on board and and taking it further for for the organization you think as a result of this as well that the the internal teams work better even though this was a this was a, a process to help improve the customer's experience do you think it's actually helped the internal teams Oh, completely. A hundred percent, because it's now something we've got to refer to and they can see where they fit in. Um, and that's not to say that people didn't realise that before. And it's absolutely not to say that everyone was just working in their own little kingdom before. But I think it gives a, a central focus point. I say so the end of the world got in the way a little bit. So we are looking now to kind of now we've got the Hampton Court one and we're putting in place the process for reviewing that, for reviewing our kind of customer experience backlog documents that we now have for each palace um, to understand, you know, we need to get on with this area, this element. So, for example, Hampton Court, we need some better signage in the car park so we can get on with that first. That's a priority. We know that that's a that's a pain point. So we've kind of got these lists and we're putting in place this process for reviewing those, keeping us like holding ourselves to account, making sure we're getting on with things as and when we can. The same with basically, I guess, every other kind of um, museum, gallery, heritage attraction, resource and funding is a, is an issue for us at the moment. So it's just understanding kind of where those priorities are but yeah understanding that process and how how we review it and bringing all of those departments in um and kind of working together on on how we fix things or improve things I think is is definitely going to be getting better and better as we go on we're kind of about to relaunch it in a way now that we've got the Hampton Court one as well because it's it's taken a while for everyone to come back to work to find their feet again I don't know about anyone else, but it took me a long time to be able to focus for any more than five minutes at a time. So now that we're back there and it's looking, starting to look a bit more normal, we can really start kind of launching that, making sure the entire organisation understands what we've got, why we've got them and and how we intend to use them. So that'll be kind of a job for this summer and into the autumn. I mean, what a great experience, what a great process to go through. And yeah. it's had so many like incredible outcomes. Yeah. What would be your top tips for any organization that's about to embark on something similar I think that the most important thing is involve your colleagues and involve them early um a lot of people obviously there's there's always going to be um demands on kind of time and energy but making sure that people understand early how important they are to and how important their work and their departments are to 
understanding everything is is vital and organizations can only be stronger it's only be stronger for it I'd also say in terms of organized I kind of visit attraction organizations front of house teams making sure that their voice is absolutely heard because you know it's one thing for somebody who's um, in the back office kind of tapping away to start coming and saying we think this and we're going to fix it <laughs> with this um, if you haven't actually asked the guys who are out on the ground um, answering the question of where the toilets are for the 50th time in an hour so I think that's that was the biggest things for me was um, you know making sure in, in to whatever extent that you do customer journey mapping because you can do a kind of pretty informal version you can take it to the extent that we did but it's make sure that your front of house teams are heard um, and are, are a big part of it I think good tip um weirdly that's where we go and start as well from a, even from a digital perspective oh, because people often think that you just talk to the marketing department because that's who you're engaged with that's who that's who's brought you on but for us to understand where digital can support the organization we need to understand what challenges front of house are having yeah and then bring the two together it so that's completely that completely so glad. I knew we'd be alive. Hey, I knew we would. <laughs> right. We need to talk about Superbloom. I mean, spectacular. You're in the midst of it right now. For anyone who's watching the, or anyone who's listening to this, sorry, not watching the video. Why aren't you watching the video? Because we're fabulous. <laughs> um, Kate's in a high vis jacket right now because she's actually on site. Yep. Um, in the in the midst of Superbloom. Absolutely. Yes, I'm out there as uh, event coordinator today. So. Um... Yeah, running around looking after our volunteers and our visitors, making sure that everything's running smoothly and uh, yeah, everyone's happy, which is a lot easier in beautiful sunshine like this. <laughs> it is a glorious, glorious day and um, it is an absolutely spectacular showpiece what you have there. So congrats on pulling it off. Thank you so much. I mean, I can't take really any credit <laughs> for it. I, honestly, it's our kind of our interpretation teams um, have been working on this for about three years. It's, it's been a, a really long build up to the project. You know, the work started on site in, in about October. Um, and then there's been a lot of kind of since I think late March, early April, a lot of kind of staring at soil, kind of like, are we okay? Are they, are they coming? Please are they work. <laughs> Anything? Is something going? Um, so, yeah, they've done, I, honestly, I can't even explain what an amazing job they've done. And there's something like 20 million seeds planted in that moat. Um, so that the, the scale of it cannot be underestimated. But, yeah, we got there. We opened... Um, uh, officially on the 1st of June just in time for the Jubilee weekend and it was you know it's something that we we learned from our commemorations of World War One so both the poppies and, and the flames that the public really liked having the tower as a kind of a place a central place to come and take part in national events so that's kind of where the thought came from about celebrating the Queen's Jubilee with that kind of uh, change in the moat again. We've upgraded from ceramic poppies to to the real thing. There's a there's a wonderful scattering of of Californian poppies down there at the moment. So it's looking absolutely stunning. And um, we've got got everything from different smells going on. There's there's music down there, which honestly is so zen. It's my favourite place to be. I'm just going walk through like I'm so calm right now. There is no city <laughs> of London out there. There's no traffic. I'm just in the bed of flowers in this amazing music but yeah it's it's been going really well and um yeah it, it's just it's one of those times where you just realize how strong your teams are um you know we've got kind of event coordinators who all have other jobs that you know have, have volunteered to to come out and help on other days off or in, alongside their regular jobs we've got volunteer coordinators who are mostly our front of house teams who as anyone will know like in, in a summer it's 
it's so busy on site anyway and then for them to offer to come and um, help in super bloom on days off is incredible so um it does yeah without being too kind of gooey about it it makes you really proud to be to be part of an organization that kind of has the the vision to do this and then um, moves forward and actually does it and we also have a slide which is oh well I mean if you weren't sold before Kate mentioned the slide I mean (laughs) I'm there (laughs) come and slide into the moat it's do you know what it's the most joyous thing the kids love it obviously but my absolute favorite thing has been watching adults um you know we, we've we had grandmothers going off and going down and it just like I want to be like them I want to I want to still have that kind of I say playfulness um when I'm a kind of a closer a little bit closer to to the end of my run on this earth oh, but, um, it's, yeah absolutely yeah it's a great event and it's um it's just something completely different in in the city and you know it's, it represents the biggest change we've made to the moat or not hrp but has been made to the moat since the duke of wellington drained it in i think 1843 um so since then it's been mostly turf it's been kind of used for other practicalities like allotments in the in world war ii and so on but um yeah it hasn't been changed to this extent since then so it's it's a big mark in kind of the, the history of the tower as well um as well as you know kind of acknowledging um the queen's achievement and just kind of helping the biodiversity a little bit of city of london as well yeah. one of the best bits is as you're walking through the flowers if you if you stop and look they're moving there's so many kind of pollinators and wildlife in there um it's just it's yeah it's amazing it's a very kind of wholesome grounding life isn't so bad <laughs> kind of kind of place it, to be. yeah i mean kate you've absolutely sold it absolutely beautifully. Oh, good. Everybody so, come, everyone come everyone <laughs> go visit i mean how could you not after that um <laughs> Kate, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. We always ask our guests to recommend a book, a book that you love that you'd recommend to our listeners. What have you got for us? So this was so hard. Honestly, I was sat there looking at my bookshelves because I've got everything from basically every book that's ever been written on Henry V because I'm a a geek on that side of things. Um, I think one of the the ones that kind of really woke me up to understanding the psychological side of customer experience a little bit more was thinking fast and slow which most people in this kind of uh, environment I'm I'm sure have read or heard of but it's it's a great way of kind of understanding what's going on in people's minds when they're just going around their their everyday life so yeah that's been so helpful in, in terms of working out how to make things more seamless and making sure that people can do things automatically and it's intuitive and obvious which means the kind of the bigger part of them is is free to enjoy and be happy and be excited about where they are so I think that's that's definitely kind of um, a big one for me but from a kind of personal side of view if I'm not looking at heritage then whales and dolphins are my absolute absolute passion um, and there's a book called Leviathan by um, Philip Hoare, who's, who's also a kind of whale fanatic. And it's just his relationship with understanding the oceans, understanding kind of the history of whales, of whaling, the changing relationship between humanity and, and um, whales. I, it's my absolute favourite book. So, yeah, if you want something a bit, a bit out there, <laughs> a bit random, then Leviathan is, is an amazingly well-written book. That sounds beautiful. Well, I mean, neither of those books have been recommended on the podcast oh, before either. Oh, okay, so okay. this is really I interesting. Fast and slow, I was just like, I feel like everyone would have said that one because it's, mm. yeah, it's, it, the chapters are really short. It's kind of a concentrating read, but absolutely, it, re- it really kind of sets out how humans think and how we, why we are as we are. So I think it's really, really valuable in terms of thinking about customer experience. 
Yes, great. I, I, I'm absolutely amazed that nobody has recommended it before. But right. OK, so we well, Kate has blown my marketing budget like most people do. So <laughs> we, we'll give you two books to win. Thank you. Month. Thank you. So, Sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> you know what to do, listeners. Head over to our Twitter account, find this episode announcement and retweet it with the words, I want Kate's book, uh, books because there's two yeah sorry and sorry <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be in with a chance of winning them so go go over and do that Kate it's been such a pleasure thank you thank so you. much I thank honestly I'm such a geek on this stuff so it's so it's so nice to have an excuse to, to talk about it I've loved it well uh, feel free to come back on anytime and talk more about it because it's been it's been a delight thank you so much thanks for listening to skip the queue if you've enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review it really helps others find us And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.